And if you're a visitor for the first time, we're glad you're here too. And if you're an old-timer, well, we can put up with you as well. Um, We are going through uh, what we call the Book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Roman church. And so if you'd like to turn there right now, chapter 6, we are going through the Book of Romans. And as a quick recap, it's all about righteousness. This is what this letter of Paul to the Roman church and to us is all about. And we're in the, finally to this next section of righteousness imparted, how righteousness is given to us, and the idea of sanctification, this fancy word, and we'll say more about that later. Believe it or not, we're going to try two chapters today in huge chunks just by going through Scripture and uh, making some, a few comments. And here's the word sanctification. And I'm not um, big on pushing a bunch of structure down your throat, so I'm not going to do that. But basically, because it was a one big scroll, and now we're trying to divide it up. Uh, the uh, sixth chapter, chapter six, we're looking at righteousness, the freedom we have with Christ. And when we look at chapter seven, we're going to see the flip side of that, what kind of bondage we have in ourselves as we turn ourselves uh, away from what God wants and submit ourselves to our own desires. I'm going to read just a few pieces, so don't be afraid. This is all large print because I'm old and blind. Uh, A few uh, portions of the scripture here, we'll pray, and then we'll make a few comments and just keep moving, okay? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? No way. We who died to sin, how shall we live in it? Or do you not know that as many of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we also might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with the likeness of his death, certainly we also will be in his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin may be done away with, so that we should be no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Let's pray. Lord, I, I would pray that you take my words... I pray that they're your words, your thoughts. I pray that they would strike home to the hearts and minds of folks through the Holy Spirit, through your illumination. Let me, again, get out of the way and and, uh, simply present your word to folks so that they might understand the glories that are in this word of God and the glories that are in the eternal life in which we enjoy as believers, as your children, through the sacrifice of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's go back through some of these things. What shall we say then? Are we, are we to keep living as sinners? No way. That's that phrase again. We who died to sin, how shall we live in it? Or don't you know that many of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? And what sort of baptism are we talking about? Well, we'll get to this symbol in a minute, but let's look at this word baptism. It's kind of a, a funny old word in English. What does baptism mean? Well, baptism, to baptize in the original, means to plunge, to dip, to immerse, to whelm, as in overwhelm, all right? So that's the meaning of it. It means, in in certain contexts, to put a piece of cloth into dye and to plunge that into the dye, or even the washing of dishes. But what had happened in English? Well, now we're going to go straight to English here. By the time baptism, by the time the Scripture was taken from Greek into English, It had become customary through a long, long story I'll not tell you 
to sprinkle little babies, all righty? Not to plunge them, not to immerse them. And so when they translated in the 16th century and then later the famous King James translation of 1611, we look at baptism, we just take the Greek words. You can even see them. Here's this lowercase baptizo and the uppercase baptizo. And basically all they did is give it English letters and call it baptize. They really didn't define it at all. They just made a word out of it. And you'll find this is common in other languages like Bulgarian. But actually, the theme of it is to baptize, is to plunge or immerse. So what I'm saying is this. The idea of baptism, and I've pointed this out at certain baptism uh, services that I've had a chance to speak at, is we are baptized into the death of Jesus. As we trust in Jesus as our Savior, we are united with him and plunged into his death. So the symbol, the water symbol, comes later. But this is the actual reality, spiritual reality of our lives, that we are buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we also might walk in newness of life. So that's what you get. You get the, and there's the newness of life, you get the whole symbol, and I'll speak of in a minute, but we have become united with his death We will be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing that our old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. So we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. That verse, familiar verse in Galatians, chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, and we would say with it, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I don't live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live is the one that he gave me because he loved me and gave himself for me. Now, here's the picture spiritually. We who died should be no longer be slaves to sin for, for, for anyone who has died is freed from sin. So if we have died with Christ, we believe that we should also will live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, no longer dies. Christ died. He was hung on the cross, and he died this physical death. Did Christ, did Jesus die a spiritual death? Yes, he did. For those six hours that he hung on the cross, he was separated from God. God turned his back on him, and Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabbathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not my father. He didn't say my father. He said, my God. So Jesus actually died a spiritual death. Try to understand that? No way. Martin Luther once said, he read the scripture, he said, God separated from God. Who can comprehend it? Closed the book and then, you know, went on to something else. (laughs) But he suffered that death. But guess what? Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, no longer dies. Death isn't longer a master over him. He (coughs) rose from the dead, and death holds no power over him. For the death that he died... He died once for all. I mean, can we keep saying this until we get it? Jesus' death on the cross was the one sufficient sacrifice that we might live forever with him. The one sufficient sacrifice to pay for everything that we've done wrong and remove that barrier between us and God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin but living uh, with God in Jesus Christ. So there's the reality. We have been crucified with Christ. We've been buried, quote, baptized, plunged into his death. In that death, we've been raised just like Jesus was raised three days later, raised from the dead. To do what? To walk in newness of life, to consider ourselves dead to sin, 
death no longer has any control over Jesus. Death no longer has any control or mastery over us. We may face a physical separation from our body someday, 20 years from now, a year from now, an hour from now. We may face that, but we will never face an eternal separation from God, the separation. That's what the reality is, and that's why we have this symbol that we're going to come up in a month or so, where we are water baptized, plunged, and brought up, a symbol only to represent what God has done through Jesus in us. All right? So we get to the next section of, um, I think I'll just read off the uh, text here on the screen. We get to the next section of Romans 6. So he says, therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body, that you obey its lusts, and neither presenting your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. There are so many things to say here. So he says, since all that's taken care of, you've been crucified with Christ, you've been buried with him, you've been raised again to live a newness of life, death has no control over you anymore, present your instrument, your body, your members. You've been doing, you've been presenting these members as instruments of unrighteousness. Now, I have this down here, this word instruments. It does mean tool or item or object, but often, in the right context, it means weapon, okay? Presenting yourselves as, you've been doing this as, as, as weapons of unrighteousness. Now, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and present your members, your body, as Member, uh, as uh, instruments, weapons of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. It's important to remember we're in this spiritual battle, all right? This spiritual battle of, against the evil one, Satan, the devil himself, who holds the whole world captive for a time, and this spiritual battle that goes on between what the believers, God, God's truth, and, and the forces of evil who would hold us into bondage and separate us from God forever, okay? You're not under law, but under grace. So sin need not be master over you. So some crackpot says, okay, because we have all this grace, it's like old country buffet, and this is why it probably went out of business, you know, because it's all one price, let's just eat all that we can. You know, we'll go in there and pig out on 47 chicken wings or something like that. I don't know. Because we have all this grace, let's just go ahead and sin. Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Again, he uses that expression. No way. Ain't going to happen. It shouldn't happen. Don't you know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness. This idea of presenting, it's, you know, it's pretty obvious there. To present is to lay beside in the, in the original or to lay before, to lay in front of something. It's when you present someone a gift. This is a simple contrast that we can move through fairly quickly here, but I want you to think about for all week. We've been present, if you present yourself to, uh, to, to someone or something, you are slaves of that one to whom you will be, either of sin to death, of our obedience to righteousness. Now, um, I could go back to that because 
it's a common story that's often told, and it's a melancholy one, it's a sad one. But as in the United States we had this terrible, the peculiar institution, the writers call it in the 18th century, of, of chattel slavery where one man owned another man, uh, and particularly on a racial basis. And they owned them. And when emancipation was declared in 1863, oh, that was great. And the Civil War ended in 65. Well, those folks were slaves. But one problem became, this became a big problem, unlike the United Kingdom or the British Empire where emancipation occurred in a different way. As all the slaves were freed, they owned no land, they had no money, they barely owned the clothes on their back, they had no training other perhaps in agricultural terms. Remember, in the South, it was forbidden to teach a black person how to read or to write or to use numbers and mathematics and that sort of thing. The slave owner would be heavily fined and the slave would be, you know, sent away and perhaps done away. So they were incapable of moving on in life. Many slaves remained right where they were on the plantation or with their slave owner master because they had no other option. And that is a sad, melancholy picture of this. When you present yourselves to someone's slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin to death or obedience to righteousness. Now, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart, that teaching which you were committed, and you, having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. What was my point of telling you that illustration? Sadly, when they were given freedom... They had nowhere else to go, so they gave themselves back into a a voluntary bondage to their former master, their former slave owner. And frankly, this is what we do. I can't say every day. For me, it's every day. (laughs) I won't talk about you. But that's what we do in our Christian lives. If we trusted in Jesus, we've been freed from sin. Death no longer has a power over us, but we are Willingly obedient, we give ourselves over to a slave master, and we are slaves to obey to that master. And we turn ourselves back. Instead of slaves of righteousness, we give ourselves back to slaves of unrighteousness and sin. More on that in the next uh, chapter as well. He says, I'm speaking as a man in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. But just as you presented your members of slaves to impurity and to lawlessness unto lawlessness, and this is where it's going to end, so now present, give yourselves over as members of slaves to righteousness unto sanctification. Now we come to this fancy word. Again, I apologize in one sense. In another sense, I don't. Sanctification. Those aren't words we use unless we're doing a, a crossword puzzle often. Sanctification Okay, many of you know that the Hebrew Scriptures, kind of obvious. What language are the Hebrew Scriptures written in? Ah, Hebrew, all right? The Hebrew Scriptures, the Tanakh, the Old Testament are written in Hebrew in some parts in Aramaic. The New Testament, the letters and the Gospels, they're written in Greek. This is a Latin word, okay? Sanctification. We get a lot of words from there. Sanctuary, if you know you... Victor Hugo fan. Sanctuary, sanctuary. You know, oh, never mind. Uh, sanct, something, don't, don't touch it. A sanctum, the inner sanctum. Sanctus, which is a, a music thing, part of a, a mass. Sanction. 
you know, sanctions against certain countries that do things that we don't like or mm, competitors in the Olympics. But, you know, they can go anyway. Uh, or unsanctioned act. And we get the word sanct from there. But what does it actually mean? What does sanctification mean? And there's two facets here I want you to get. I kind of want you to get the uh, distinction between the two because they're both important, but we, we get muddled with them. The first idea of sanctification is to be set apart. That's what the word means. The Hebrew word, uh, Old Testament, uh, kadash, is used over 170 times. And it's talking about being set apart. It's not... Well, we'll get to the next bit in a minute, but let's concentrate on the set-apartness of it, being set apart. Often it's used of the nation of Israel and how God set them apart to bring the Messiah into the world and to individual uh, men and priests and others to sanctify themselves, set themselves apart. But it simply means set apart. Actually, in um, Jeremiah 22, that same word is used where the heathen, pagan, ungodly nations, they are set apart to come and punish Israel for their unbelief and godlessness. So it just means set apart. But here's the other part of it, is to be holy. And that's kind of, it's the same but different. Because you are set apart from something, the world. And you are set apart to God. And that whole idea where we get the word holiness and sainthood and all that is also in there. But here's where we kind of get into a muddle. Sanctification is not sanctimonious. If I said the word sanctification, it's probably the first thing that would come to some people's mind because it's a seldom used word. Oh, you're being sanctimonious or holier than thou. That's true. I mean, that's... But on the other hand, sanctification does result in greater holiness in the believer, greater holiness. You know, actually, shouldn't I aspire to be more like God and less like the world? And if that makes me holy, am I supposed to be ashamed of that? Isn't that something I strive for? The downside comes is when people exercise this sanctimonious in a holier-than-thou, I'm-better-than-you attitude. And unfortunately, even when we don't try to do that, sometimes that happens. I have to say that the gospel itself is at odds with the world. Paul said to the Greeks, it's, you know, it's foolishness, and to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. The teachings of what's in Scripture. So if someone sees your lifestyle, many times they'll be drawn to Jesus the Messiah. But sometimes... They'll hate you. Sometimes they'll, they'll, they'll shun you or ridicule or scorn you for doing what the Scripture itself says. Why? Because, because of doing the right thing, the good thing, which is holy, sometimes leads to a conviction. You understand what I mean? So what I'm saying here is this fine balance between don't live a holier-than-thou life in your attitude and mind, but live a holier-than-thou life, I suppose, in your life. Because we want to draw closer to God and be more like what he commands in his word. So that's the kind of fine balance of sanctification. Sanctification goes on and on and on. And as we will see, we talk about uh, justification being declared righteous. As we're saved, we place our faith in Jesus. He removes the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin. It's boom, stamped off. It's gone. 
written, paid in full. With sanctification, this is being removed from the power of sin, the power of sin. As sin tries to take its hold on our life and goes on and on and on, that we are being removed from its power as we submit ourselves, slaves to obey. What are you going to obey? You're going to obey sin and unrighteousness, or you're going to obey uh, God's law, God's word to righteousness. Okay? Now, so that's the ongoing and sometimes controversial debate between these two things that are going on. So if you were slaves, you were free in regard to righteousness. So what fruit did you have from the things that were beginning? The end of these things are death. The life that we've lived before Jesus, the life of sin, it's going to end up in death, separation from God. For many people, it'll end up in a physical death because, you know, you can only drink so much Jack Daniels until your liver blows out, you know, and, or you can only take so many drugs until you overdose. Or you can only live a violent kind of life until somebody with a bigger gun than you shoots you where it hurts. Those things will end in death. But you, having been freed from sin but enslaved to God, you derive your fruit, your benefit to sanctification and to the end eternal life. Because of what Jesus has done for you and paid that penalty, but that life will continue on as you grow in him, and that will be your end. For the wages of sin is death. A very popular verse. But the grace gift, that gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I didn't get up here that long ago, so we're going to take chapter 7. We'll do a real quick job, okay? Now, we get to the sort of other side of that coin where Paul talks about a, a, an, an important sobering issue with what it's like when we live in the power of man. All right? Now, so let's read some verses. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those knowing the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her living husband. But if her husband should die, she is released from the law of the husband or discharged from that law. Straightforward principle, you know, United States of America. If you marry another one, you're a bigamist. Therefore, while her husband is living, he's still alive, she will have the name adulteress if she's joined to another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. So not to be an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. So if the, if the husband dies, she's freed. Alrighty? Put that there. So as such, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another to him, Jesus, who was raised from the dead, in order that we should bear fruit for God. Who are we joined to? The body of Christ. So that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead. Believers are joined to Christ as the bride of Christ. Uh, this is first mentioned in 1 Corinthians. Uh, it's mentioned in other books like Galatians, particularly the long passage in Ephesians chapter 5. If you want to read it later. This is more difficult for men to get around sometimes. I don't know why. But here's the deal. One of those 33 things that happens when you trust in Jesus as Savior is you become the bride of Christ. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom, the man, the husband. We believers, male and female, become his spotless bride as we believe in him. We're born again, born into the family of God. We become the bride of Christ. 
And so he's taken a real clever like, link between that marriage example and what's happening to us spiritually with Jesus as we're joined as the bride of Christ, okay? Now, in order that we should bear fruit to God, for while we were in the flesh, the passions of sin, which were through the law, were at work in our members in order to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of letter. As Second Corinthians makes clear, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. All right? And that's the purpose. The purpose of the law is not simply letter by letter, but, but the Spirit of the law that's behind it. Okay, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Now, he's going to go into this discussion of what happens to we um, believers. I'm jumping ahead and letting you know that I think it's believers. What happens to us in our personal life concerning our failure as we rely on ourselves? What shall we say then? Is the law sin? No way. But I would not have known sin except through the law. I would not have known about coveting. The word there is lust, uh, but it's uh, taken uh, from the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet, like Paul does. I would not have known about coveting except the law said, you shall not covet. But Taking opportunity through the commandment, sin produced in me all kinds of coveting. For apart from the law, sin is dead. We talked about this from chapter 1. We talked about it last week. We, as natural men, unbelievers, are in a state of sin separated from God. And sin is more about who we are than what we do. We are separated from Him. But, as we've said before, the more laws... Paul clearly says that law is not bad, but it is true that the more laws that are written, the more lawbreakers there are, because you wouldn't have that without that law. Okay? So, anyway, this goes all the way back to, if you want to look at the first, uh, I don't want to steal Tim's thunder here, but um, uh, Genesis, because I think he's going to be preaching on Genesis. But really, you look at the first temptation in the garden. Was there law? Yeah. Well, there's a couple of really, really good laws. He plopped a man, and he plopped a woman there. He made a woman out of the man, and he had this wonderful garden. And he said, and he said name all the animals and tend the garden, take care of it. He said, Here's my fun one. Is, he says, be fruitful and multiply, right? And they were naked and not ashamed. So I would think they would get, you know, get right to the job. I mean, that's, that's a good law to obey, okay? But, he says, but, 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 see this tree over here. You can eat of all the trees, but not that one. Yes, tree. No tree. Don't eat of that one. There's a law. Don't eat of that one. And as I've mentioned before, I, I firmly believe, you see this in, in later epistles, Eve had been deceived by the serpent, but Adam voluntarily, willingly disobeyed. He said, hmm, oh, I have no problem obeying these laws. Uh, that law, ah, I'm going to have that. And he disobeyed. Sin, you know, there was a law, then there was sin, then there was death. That's the whole principle from the very first temptation in the Garden of Eden. Okay? So, I was once alive apart from law, or the law, but sin coming by the commandment became alive, and I died. And the commandment, which was under life, found to be death to me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, beguiled me, deceived me, and through it, it killed me off. So then, the law is holy and the commandment holy, righteous, and good. So there's nothing wrong with that law, not at all. But that sin beguiled him, deceived him, Satan, and he 
sinned. He disobeyed, and death came. Okay? Now, therefore, did that which was good for, become death for me? No way. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by working my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. The word there says, so that sin would become hyperbolically, you know what a hyperbole is, over-exaggerated, totally sinful, totally sinful. So, a few more minutes. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I wish, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do, <clears throat> but if I do the very thing I do not wish, I agree with the law that the law is good. Oh, I'll read from here. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I am fleshly. Okay, what is this all about? Well, this is kind of, um, we'll get to it later. This is about the idea of the new and old nature in a believer. The word nature is not mentioned here, but it is in other passages. Let's take a look at this word fleshly. It's often used in older versions, carnal, okay? Carnal. It sounds like, you know, well, it sounds like some kind of Mexican beef dish, but carnal because it's flesh, because there are three kinds of, of people, humans, natural, natural man. Who is he? The natural man is the person, rich, poor, intelligence, you know, Take us a plank, whatever. The natural man is the person outside of the family of God. No matter how many degrees they have or don't have, or how much money they have or don't have, they're the person that has not received Jesus as the one Savior, the one payment for their sin. Therefore, they've not been born into the family of God. They're not a child of God. They're not redeemed. They're not regenerated. They're not justified. They're not born again. Any of those terms that are very good terms because they're all in the Bible, okay? That's the natural man. It says in Corinthians, he cannot discern the things of, this, of the Spirit because they're spiritually discerned. He can't understand them. So um, I'll get to that in a minute maybe, but so why are we so surprised when some people react and live the way they do? Because they can't understand. Now, let's get to the spiritual man real quick. The spiritual man, you can see that in the same um, text and the spiritual man is one who has trusted in Christ and has been born into the family of God and has had those 33 things happen to him. That's the spiritual man, okay? Who's able to discern, who's able to rightly divide the word of truth and understand the things that are being taught. Now we come to this carnal man or fleshly man. Well, you see him right here in Romans 7, don't you? The things that I would wish to do, that I don't. By the way, the word wish, it's the same verb the way through, and I try to change it, you know. The word wish, it comes from the word for will as a verb, like I will, I willingly do this. It's to will or to want or to wish for something. The things that I would not just simply wish, like, oh, you know, again, I wish the Eagles win the Super Bowl sometime. I wish I get a million bucks and I want the Eagles to win the Super Bowl. But I willingly try to do this and I can't. And the things I don't will to do, those things happen in my life. That's the carnal man, all righty? Nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh that is good. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. The good that I want or will to do, I don't. But I practice the very evil that I don't wish or will want to do. But if I am doing the very thing I don't want, 
I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. So, big discussion here. A lot of people say, this can't be a saved person. Because like I mentioned before, if you're unsaved, you're a spawn of Satan himself, and, you know, you're evil and everything that spews out of you like worms and germs. But if you're saved, you become one of these flannel graph figures, and all of a sudden you're holy, oh, you know, and you're just perfect. So that can't be. That can't be. And they argue that, well, it does say he's sold under sin. So is this Paul before salvation or Paul as he is now, and by extension, us? What does this say about the believer? What does this say about the believer? Answer, I think this is a clear example of the two natures in the believer. When you are the old man, all you have is the old nature. And as I mentioned, why are we surprised when people do the things they do? Uh, Johnson famously said about um, the dog that could do tricks and walk on its hind legs, it's not a wonder that it does it well, it's a wonder that it does it at all. We should be amazed when people do good things outside of the body of Christ, outside of, of the family of God. We should be amazed that good things happen. Because really, why should they? But on the other hand, when we are born again, we're born into the family of God, there is a new creation. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, here's exactly the way it puts it. It says, if any man be in Christ, dash, dash, new creation. The old gone, dash, new has come. So it doesn't mean that you're totally transformed and all of a sudden living this Mother Teresa life or something of that nature. It means that there is a new creation within you, a new nature to do battle with your old nature. And that's what sanctification is all about. As we submit willingly to the teachings of God, the plan of God, the things of God, to live according to what he would have in our life. That's what what being set apart is about. It's not a complete... All of a sudden, you're perfect. If that had happened, we would be saved, born into God's family, we'd be all of a sudden transformed as perfect, and God would just take us home that very instant to heaven. That's how it would happen. That's the, the discussion that's going on here. So I think this is a battle that's going on within Paul's life and our lives. The principal in me is the one who wants to do good. That in me, evil is present. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in my members waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner in the law of sin, which is in my members. There's this conflict going on, this war, as the Holy Spirit is in me, indwelling me, convicting me of the good, the true, the biblical, the pure, and there's the old nature that's trying to drag me back. And chapter 6, you are servants of the one you choose to obey. You're a slave, a slave to righteousness, a slave to unrighteousness. Who are you going to give to your, uh, yourself to as uh, uh, the slaveholder? Making me a prisoner in the law, which is my members. Why does this happen? As I said, the old nature versus the new nature. Okay? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What a weird word this word wretched is. I looked it up. It's the funniest thing. It says to bear as in to carry, you know. It's, it's that, and callous, like a bunion or a cord on your foot. And so the word wretched means 
to bear a callus. And you think, well, how does that fit in? Well, I was just thinking, you know, in this culture and society that gave us crucifixion and scourging and torture and all those things, Paul says, wretched man that I am. Have you ever had someone with a, you know, a pain in the foot and you bear it your entire life and there's nothing you can get away? And that's, what, that's the burden that Paul is saying we bear. Wretched man that we are, who will deliver me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that, on the one hand, I myself in my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. This conflict that goes on and on. With this, we'll quit. Okay? We'll close up. The spiritual battle goes on throughout the life of the believer. As I said, if it didn't, if it didn't, I suppose God would just take us, take us home immediately. If we were transformed into total perfection and purity, we couldn't bear to live here right? This old and new nature as we submit ourselves to the things of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification is a lifelong process of being set apart to God, to the things that He desires, and from the world to be holy. You may not want to carry that name, but tough. You're stuck with it. To be holy, to live in holiness. But let us be holy, not holier than thou. Let us be sanctified, not sanctimonious, because that is the way that people will truly recognize the truth of the gospel in our lives and the truth of the gospel in his word and come to faith in Jesus. Let's pray.